everybody to Overdue Rentals, the show where we talk about films that people are not talking about anymore. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And today we are joined by the one and only Riley Stearns, director of his new, well, his new film is Duel, which premiered at Sundance and it's finally coming out to everybody here on April 15th, which uh, involves a story about, I'll just be very quick without ruining anything, I guess, uh, in the slightly near- I've got the, oh, go I was going to say, I've got the perfect, just you don't want to know much about this. I've got the perfect synopsis for oh, this. Oh, please tell me. Karen Gillan fights herself and gets Aaron Paul to help her. <laughs> done and done. There you go. Put it on the poster, folks. But Riley's also here to talk about his previous uh, work, The Art of Self-Defense, which is our overdue rental for today, which uh, is going to be a fun thing to talk about because it's a, it was a movie that got a lot of great buzz when it came out, but I still think a lot of people still need to see it. That almost sounds like an overdue rental. Yeah, I think that's I think that's I think that's the uh, the the gist of it, which is you know a movie that stars Jesse Eisenberg as a mm, what do you want to call him sheepish man who kind of tries to learn yeah. how to bring out his uh, inner bad boy. <laughs> yes, he wants to learn the ways of the warrior, and he finds a guy that can kind of help with that. But you know, interesting things, interesting turns are taken as as oft happens in Riley Stern's movies, which. Uh, we'll get into it in the interview, but there is there is a very special sort of aesthetic that I've picked up on his work, and I really like it, especially in terms of how he sort of jazzes it up in Duel. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit after as well. So for that, until then, everybody strap in. And let's let Riley into the store, get up to the, up to the counter, let's, let's talk. Yes, time to talk Duel and the Art of Self-Defense with Riley Stearns. Thank you, Riley, so much for joining us. Really appreciate you having you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, ho hopefully people don't hear the construction going on behind my house all of a sudden. So far, I've heard nothing. I'm sure there's gonna okay. be somebody making some sound over here at one point or another too. So I think we're all, we're all covered on that base. Okay, great. Sounds all around. You might hear cats on my end, or you might okay. hear me reacting to them because some, they might, <laughs> what they like to do is put their paws on me when they want something. And there's just like, claw. And in the middle of a staff meeting yesterday, I'm like, ah, cat. And then I just look at them and they're all like, they're kind of laughing. It's like, they, they get it. And what they want now, most of all, is to talk about Duel because, you know, I saw, I saw the film uh, during Sundance and I immediately said like, all right, we got we to gotta talk to Riley about this because I had such a great time with it. Um, but I have to wonder, in, in, in coming up with you know, any film idea, specifically this one, is it more the premise or the actual story that comes to you first when you want to build something like this out? Uh, this one was specifically the premise. I, uh, I knew that I wanted to do something where an actor would perform opposite themselves. Uh, I had that vision for a short that I didn't make and I just really hadn't scratched that itch. Uh, so I started thinking of an idea that would get me to that sort of result came up with the idea that uh, in this alternate reality, if you're dying of a terminal disease, you can have yourself cloned uh, so that your family wouldn't have to miss you. But I didn't feel like that was enough uh, to warrant an actual movie yet. I like really felt like there was something else, at least my perspective of, of subverting the expectations of what that would be, uh, what that film would be. And so I started asking specific questions in relation to that world and asked the question, what would happen if you went into remission? And for some reason, the in, in very first thing that popped in my head was, well, you'll do your, duel yourself to the death. 
And at that point, I knew that I, that was the movie. I knew that that was the thing that I wanted to pursue. And at that point, I felt like all of the story came like immediately. Uh, I, I knew where the beginning, middle and end would be. Uh, and the end never changed from that initial thought to where we are today. Mm. Uh, but yeah, this is specifically one where the premise kind of started it off. I have to say between this film and another that we're going to uh, discuss today, The Art of Self-Defense, I love, it's sort of a, a, a thematic aesthetic that I like to call CD strip mall because it's just like these businesses where they're, sort, they're not very far flung. Like even this cloning process, it's not like some futuristic lab where Robert Duvall is like a technician and tells you, oh yeah, I can bring your dog back. It's very much, oh, well, you know, this, this is a procedure that we can do for you. It's, it's very specific. Here's the rules. Uh, oh, but they'll pay for it. Don't worry. Yeah. There's definitely like that capitalist sort of comment uh, in there. And uh, I like the idea of small town, uh, the, the more lo-fi version of things. So rather than having her go to some really techie facility, we're, we're in basically uh, uh, the, the antithesis of that. Like I, I feel like and even with the training center that, that Aaron Paul's character Trent is in, uh, the dojo and the art of self-defense, it's all about more like places that like I, I do jujitsu and I train at places like that too. And it's just normal to me. And so trying to make it too big for its own good, I feel like it's more fun to focus on the smaller town aspect of things. Well, yeah, I mean, it really does. It taps into your audience better because it's, it, it, it's even just with grounded sci-fi that might be a little more bells and whistles. It's something that's still, you have that baseline of believability. Exactly. And, you know, even with, again, you, you mentioned Aaron Paul's character, which just, Beautiful deadpan from him in this. He's so good. I love him. Ugh, it's I just think Karen and Beulah all got it so well, but Aaron specifically just came in and he had no time to really settle into it. He just had to start right away because of the scheduling uh, that we were up against. And uh, he just, he hit the ground running. It was so great. I love, I love the, it's beyond just that whole, like them all catching that, that deadpan matter of fact kind of delivery specifically between the training scene of two of them when they do the whole battle where it's just like oh i stab you in the back oh i roll over it's just like because it, it, in the same breath being so many levels of both funny darkly funny but being so matter of factly for what is actually going on it made me have that feeling of that remembrance of actually me being a kid like playing games with my friends and yeah. then being like oh you know no i hit you i hit you but it but it had that seriousness behind it at the same time yeah, there, there, there's the element of like being a kid and playing a game there, but then there's also uh, some practicality, at least in the way that I like to think of the way that the training would, would proceed is that you can't fight to the death 100% or else you're going to kill somebody. So like, you've got to practice somehow. And that's something I'm going to reference jujitsu a lot if we talk about the art of self-defense as well. <laughs> but in jujitsu, a thing that we do is uh, you've got rolling, which is where you're going 100%. You're really trying to go after the person, uh, choke them, submit them, put all your pressure on them. Whereas they also do this thing called uh, flow rolling. And it's, you go 20%, if even that, and you're letting people get into positions and then you work out of that position and then you put them into a position and it's, it's a trading back and forth. And so I looked at that as almost like their version of flow rolling mm. in the film. Uh, but then there's like stab, stab of the knife and uh, rolling and uh, throwing a grenade. And what, I just like that they got to have fun and be kids, but then there's like Karen's character is learning something at the same time. What is the level that you specifically cared about 
about there being differences between the Sarahs? Was it like you had to make sure there were certain points where you can tell there was a slight difference between them or just whatever came up, it, it didn't matter as long as you knew who was who? I mean, I, I definitely wanted people to know who was who, but I, I always, in, in talking with Karen, she agreed, we felt like the differences should be more on the subtle side. So we were never, I think it's, it's and it's harder to make people feel different in a more specific, small sort of way rather than these big choices. So we really leaned into the fact that they're probably almost identical, but they're just starting to branch off and become their own person. And then specifically too, uh, just the way that we did hair and makeup, uh, the way that their wardrobe was uh, determined. We always had the idea that Sarah had given up a little bit. And so she kind of starts here. And then Sarah's double starts here because she's got the world at her feet and she has all these options. And then as life starts to beat Sarah's double down, she's kind of coming down to here. Uh, and I know this is an audio thing, so people can't see my hand. I'm, I'm moving my top hand that Sarah's doubled down to the middle point, and I'm moving my Sarah hand, which is a little bit lower, to the middle point, too. They, I feel like they kind of catch up to each other, and maybe you even see Sarah uh, surpass her at a certain point, and just in terms of how much she cares about her life and, and uh, making a better version of herself. Well, that's, you know, to go back, because you, you actually, the way you put it when you said Sarah had kind of given up a little bit, that's another thing I love about not just this film, all your films, is really that you're very adept at not trying to spoon feed people stuff too much. And while there are the words throughout the film, maybe thrown around the word depression once, and uh, you know, you need help, I think Peter says to her at one point or another, mm -hmm. you show clearly, obviously, that she is in a state of depression before we know what's going to happen to her. Um, and I'm just wondering, because at the end of the day too, it's, it's a movie, not trying to, to spoil things for people. And I'm not going to say specifically what happens, but at the end of the day, when certain characters end up in a certain way, they're falling into a similar pattern. And I'm wondering how much at the end of the day, this was about that idea of breaking patterns. I think it is. It's, I think it's again, just like anything can happen to you in life and you get to choose how you take it. So it's like, you can have everything be going the right way and feeling great and then something happens and then now you have to decide am I going to accept that or am I going to fight against it and this is the very little version of that obviously but uh, I think we've all been there we all have those moments and so uh, it, it, I, I don't even think of Sarah as depressed I think of her as complacent I feel like mm -hmm. she's just like accepting of her her place and, and very um, very safe and safety can be a huge detriment. Uh, and, and I feel like she, she needed something to kind of knock her out of that. And I really love that Sarah's journey, it's not perfect and she's not like, it's not like she's gonna be some killing machine at the end of this, this year of training, but she cares enough to try. And I've had people argue, they're like, well, why did she wanna get this procedure? Why, like, she doesn't have these relationships with her family. Uh, it, it's supposed to be for them. And it's like, no, I mean, it, it can also be for us. I feel like a lot of people would probably ch choose this in that world, this, this procedure, because or out of selfishness, like they're like, well, they will miss me, as opposed to really thinking about would they? I think people just are like, well, yeah, of course my family would miss me. So I, I think that she goes from just accepting the way it is and the way her life's going and saying, these that my family obviously loves me and was, uh, by the end of it she she really thinks more about where she stands in life and and what she's after and, and i like that about her as a character yeah it's sort of this cross between altruism and egoism where it's like oh well you know 
it's the least I can do for them because I didn't mean to get this rare disease and die on them. So you know what? They'll still have me. And then there's just, that's like you said, that slow branching where even if you, that's another beautiful thing about this. You're taking a concept like cloning where, you know, the, the pie in the sky version is like, they look just like you, they act just like you, are they you? Mm. And then it turns that into, well, they are to a certain extent, but nature versus nurture still comes into play. And Sarah's double likes French food and treats Peter a different way. And even says his name with a different inflection. And it's like those little differences create that gigantic problem. Yeah. In the movie, I mean, not just about the differences between them, but about like life itself. It's not about big, big things. It's not about like, my job is so horrible and my the people around me are so awful. It's like, I get annoyed that my mom texted me before 9am to talk about a brunch on Sunday. And that, and like, that's the type of thing that we're dealing with. It's all these, these minor annoyances. It's these minor differences. I find the humor in the mundaneness of, of, of it all. And you can ask anybody who knows me, I'm the most optimistic, uh, I'm a very happy person. Like I love my life. And I like that I get to be very different than that in movies. And I think people take very big assumptions uh, on, on you as a person when they, they see that my stuff tends to be on the darker side of everything, but it's always coming at it uh, from a place of uh, like poking fun at rather than like yeah. embracing. Like I'm not a depressed person. I've been depressed in my life, but like my movies, I don't feel like are depressed either. I feel like there's always uh, some optimism and hope in there even if something doesn't end necessarily in an optimistic and hopeful way, I feel like there's at least like glimmers of that throughout. Well, that's, that's, it goes back to that. Just also what you were talking about just now about, you know, the mundane things and the differences for, for what you may feel about something, because I don't want to ever go into any type of medium and automatically compare it to something else. But I did have, and this is only in a good way, of course, but the first time I saw the film, I came out and I'm going like, you know, this is kind of doing very similar to what Moon, Duncan Jones's Moon did, which is, you know, all the stuff's going on in that film, but it's really a film about would I like myself if I met myself? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, mine was uh, when confronted with the reality of a big change and ours just happens to have the clone aspect of that change. Yeah. Uh, when, when that, when that happens, where, how do you proceed? And so uh, you get to look at yourself directly, like Sarah interacts with herself directly, but whereas that's a clone and it is exactly you, I think, in in, in yeah. Moon. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that, but uh, this is a clone that very quickly becomes their own person. And, yeah. and so it's not literally the same person, but you see yourself. And so putting yourself in front of yourself, you're able to think about uh, that in more existential ways and all of that. But uh, but yeah, I, I like doppelganger films. I like uh, uh, <laughs> twin movies. Um, I, I think that there's some interesting stuff in that in that space that's to be explored. And, and still there's plenty of room to do other things uh, as well. Does that mean we're gonna get a Riley Stearns remake of Dead Ringers? Uh, I actually, uh, when I wrote Faults, I got sent around on a lot of writing like job meetings, okay. and I I got uh, pretty far along on potentially adapting Dead Ringers as a TV thing. Okay. But I was 26, and that would have fucking sucked. That would have been a horrible <laughs> script. Oh. I, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I bullshitted my way through that thing. I never got to Cronenberg himself, but I was dealing with some people who were right like below him. And to see that it's come back around and it's actually happening is kind of cool because I think that there's really fertile ground there 
but I, I don't know exactly if they're doing this, but my idea was that each season you would go with, uh, with new people. So like you would have different, it may not be twins. It may like the next season, you may be in an alternate version where you have clones. So mm. I'm very curious to see what they do, but I, I've been thinking about doppelgangery stuff for a while now. I, now, now, now I'm just thinking a little bit about what that might've been, but even then, Dead Ringers was more grounded, but it's Cronenbergian, so it's very yeah. out there with the scope and the, even the devices and everything. Yeah, I, I was going back to the book, uh, and that thing is even darker in some oh. ways, and then it's not as it doesn't go as far in, in other ways. So we were kind of trying to take both aspects and, and play with that, but really leaning into brothers fucking each other, I think, too. That was going to be another like element that I wanted to push towards, so... They're lost. I know. <laughs> a little bit of that in Duel. You got a little bit of it in Duel. There's a nod. Yeah, there's a nod. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, oh, that was wonderful. And then just the scene right after where, like, Sarah and Adobo are like, I, I want to get close to you, but not, like, fuck you like that guy obviously did with his clone. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that that's getting a laugh that uh, I, I hoped for, but I'm, I'm actually seeing now, so it's cool. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it, yeah, it hits really well when she says it. Yeah. Good, good. Also, just that's another example of something that I really liked about the groundedness of this all is you get all of these details organically building this wild world, like, oh, the 28th Amendment, where you uh, they filed a right to stay. Yeah. Like, you go to you go to like maybe a hundred million dollar version of this. And that's going to be like something more I don't it's, know, grandiose. That's an action right. sequence. Exactly. And I, I know that that's not going to be everyone's forte. I think I've even seen it in some reviews early on out of Sundance. It's like, just like nothing's ever explained. And, and you feel like people want their handheld and they would argue that it's being lazy, but that's that's the the, the script is, a, is not ever going to, I mean, it's part of the joke is you don't even know how the cloning procedure works. And when you could find out our lead character fast forwards and says, no, you're not going to find out. And that's just like, if, if I, I'm one of those people who if exposition works for a movie, cool. And if you're able to build it in organically, great. But I would rather it just like, like you said, peripherally come about than explicitly say, this is what's happening. Yeah. Oh, this is, that's what I, I'm surprised. I mean, look, I know everybody has their own feelings, but I'm surprised there were more than one person saying that because that they felt that they felt it wasn't giving enough information. Cause that's what I, that's what I love about the film. That's what I loved about like, all your films. And that's what I love about anybody who makes a film like that. That's the way it should be. And it's not for everybody. I, I, I will be the first to admit it. Like the, the, especially the style of, of, of dialogue and it's, it's going to be grating to some people, but I, I mean, when I, I'm talking in my interview sort of way right now, but when I talk to people and friends and my family, my sister makes fun of me and she's like, you talk like every person in your movie, like the way that I parentheticalize statements and, and touch on a subject, go back to something else and then go back to the original thing, uh, the way that I use words that maybe other people don't use. And I'm not saying in a smart way always, but I just am very specific in, I guess, my my style of, of speaking. And uh, it doesn't feel normal, like weird to me. So I was talking at a key, I, I introduced it at a American Cinematheque here in LA last night and did our first LA screening and uh, was just talking about how, yeah, like this is, this is a movie where I left it in the edit and said, it's cool, like I finally made something a little bit more grounded again. And everyone else is like, grounded? What? So for me, it's grounded, but I guess I'm I'm coming at it from a slightly different perspective, so. Well, I, I can understand though, where even if people, again, see that differential um, you know, spacing where it's like to them, they don't think it's grounded, but 
as a story, it is grounded in a lot of ways. And I, I get that. Yeah. Well, and then emotionally, I feel like there's always a, there's, there's a core here and there's, there's real feelings behind every character. It's just that they don't express them in the same way that we do. It's not an overt expression, yes. but you feel hurt. You feel like excitement and sadness and, and everything in between from these characters. They're just not saying they're happy. They're not saying they're sad. And then you get moments where they're allowed to break. And I feel like it ends up being a lot of the moments in the car with Sarah or the, uh, the clone support group, I think is also uh, one where, where you're able to see a little bit behind the curtain of what this has actually done to people post uh, the duels. So yeah, the, to say that there's a lack of emotionality is, is okay in the sense that the dialogue is, has a removed nature to it, but there's full human emotions in every spectrum of it throughout the movie if you want to see it. It's just that some people don't want to see it because it's not on the surface. Well, also, exactly. It's not the flashy, sterile, you know, white hallway lab coat version. It's, hey, you get a clone in an hour and good luck taking care of that. And there's legal remedies for them to take over your life, even if you're still going to live. Exactly. But this yeah. one's eyes are a little off. So if you want to trash this one and do it again, we can do it. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I'll take that. I'll take that discount. Yeah. Like it's, it, it's just, you're trading the, the visual angle for something that is uh, I'm assuming we can both Matthew and I can both agree on this something that's sort of deeper and more unsettling because the concept of a clone itself isn't that unsettling anymore especially because science has basically given us that in in other sort of more practical animalistic terms mm -hmm. you know with Dolly the sheep but other than that it's okay there's another version of me cool oh but what if people like that version better? What if they get to do all these things and then have this sort of arc back where it's like, I wish mom would stop calling me. It's like she thinks yeah. I owe her something. And, and you, you, I appreciate you saying it this way, but I, I would argue that I, I wouldn't even call it deeper necessarily. It's just another perspective of a similar Fair. sort. So it's like a new, it's a alternate reading of the same sort of topic. And to say one is better than the other, obviously, is is, is kind of irrelevant. I just think that it's it's a different take and it's not gonna be the take that everyone latches onto, but I do think that it's a valid uh, uh, take. And I think it's one that a lot of people are getting something out of, which has been really cool. True, I still like the sixth day after watching Duel, but you know, they're two different experiences. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I don't, I don't wanna leave talking about Duel uh, without mentioning because we're, we're gonna soon come to the point where we can finally say, oh, you didn't film this at the quote unquote height of the pandemic, where you did film this when it was still very much in a lot of places were still in lockdown and uh, it was tougher to kind of get these things done. Yeah. And I, you know, people may have heard it already, but I think it's important to keep talking about what you may have had to gone through to get this made. Yeah, we shot this movie in Finland of all places. And it was because it was, we were prepping it. Uh, I was boots on the ground in August of 2020. And at that point, no vaccine, still lockdown. I left LA when nobody was seeing friends still, or if you had were, it was a very, very small bubble of trusted friends. You could kind of get testing, but it was still tricky at times. Um, and we were one of the first movies back, let alone one of the first indies back, but one of the first movies back. Uh, and a lot of it was us figuring out on the job how this works. So we were one of the first films to have to worry, worry about uh, zones shooting with, you've got zone A, zone B, zone C. Zone C can never come in contact with zone A. Uh, zone B can be on set with zone A, but only if zone A is in a separate area of zone A. So it was so 
different and antithetical to shooting. You're new, used to uh, talking to everybody and everyone's on set and it's a communal environment. But what it did get us was uh, the safety first and foremost. And then also there were fewer people uh, in the way. And on, honestly, it ended up being a little bit more efficient. It was harder on certain people like our gaffer, uh, Timo, for example, he normally has a team that he says, set these up, this up there and everything. And instead they're putting stuff at the door and then Timo takes it and he's setting it up because we can't get Karen off because she's doing something else, getting ready for the scene. And uh, we, we, he just was one of those people who was like, all right, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and I'm gonna do it. Uh, we were testing every other day, uh, which was incredibly expensive. So you lose budget on, in that regard. And then at every step of the way, I'm constantly thinking, is, is the, today gonna be the day we get shut down because somebody caught COVID? And um, I think people forget how scary it was initially. I think we're pretty, pretty desensitized to it for the most yes. part now, especially with being vaccinated. But yeah, it was pretty, intense process and at the end of it it felt like we dodged a bullet at so many uh, uh points in the road but uh as hard as some days on set were it was an overall the easiest production i probably had which is crazy and on the bright side you prepared karen for her uh a role in the bubble exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah she was uh, starting to talk at the end of our shoot about going off and doing that uh after after ours which was was cool to hear uh it was very happy for her yeah, that's, I mean, it, it has really opened up some new, the pandemic, I mean, has really opened up some new ground for filmmaking and, you know, certain things just aren't going to be the same from this point. But yeah, I mean, even, even just meetings are never going to be the same. It feels like everyone's just so used to doing things like this. And there is a value to being face to face in a room, but it is nice to not have to drive to Santa Monica every once in a while. <laughs> I, I like that. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> We here on Overdue Rentals do love to talk about the present, but we also like to step back into the past and to talk about a recent past in this case and talk about films that we feel need a little more light shed on them. And when we heard you were a guest for the show, uh, I personally felt and Matthew agreed that The Art of Self-Defense would definitely be a real, real fun movie to talk up awesome. because I still look back at this and it, it's just, it is wild. And I mean that in the best possible way. Like, I mean, this is a role that I, I'm sure people wouldn't have guessed Jesse Eisenberg would be in in a million years. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, you have Imogen Poots, who's just so, I think she's vastly underused because she's so great in anything. Like, she's just so multi-purposed. She's even like, underused in my movie, and I'm the first to admit it. So. <laughs> I, would, I would personally call both Imogene and Alessandro, like, Hollywood hidden weapons. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I think people are realizing that a little bit about both of them, uh, but yeah, I would 100% I would agree. And uh, hopefully, hopefully self-defense has helped even in the slightest bit with both of them, because they definitely helped me. And then sort of another thing, because I was sort of reading over the notes again while refreshing myself with the movie and everything. And, you know, I forgot that Leland Orser was in the, in like a movie within a movie here yeah. and then that made me think back to duel with the instructional videos <laughs> that Aaron Paul had and again just that sort of evil strip uh, evil strip mall sort of energy where it's like these these lo-fi productions that are very sinister yeah and we have a movie within the movie in duel too 
So yeah, well, as I was saying, like the uh, this. Oh, wait, another one besides the, the, the horror movie that that yeah, Karen the, where the, the the garbage disposal. Yeah, yeah. So like that's that's a theme too. Is I, I try to not put real pop culture in the films, and there's a specific instance where that I break that rule in Duel. But um, in terms of like films, especially, I try not to put actual movies. It's more fun just to go into this world that you've already created and get to shoot a little thing on the side that becomes a movie within the movie. Well, it's it's safe to say though that the cassettes that he's the sensei is making though is almost a reference to the Faces of Death cassettes from back in the day, right? Yeah, Faces of Death or Bump Bites like to like the grosser version of that. I mean, Faces of Death was sort of fake too yeah. and everything, but like, yeah, the, the commodification of, of violence and, and taking advantage of other people. And it's also just this beautiful, like, obviously the most surface theme is that of toxic masculinity and sort of how Jesse Eisenberg's character is transformed by sensei and sort of this tough guy sort of act. Yeah, I also never used that word in pitching the movie uh, once. And then it, we were shooting in 2017 uh, at the end of that year when the Harvey Weinstein stuff started breaking. And uh, that's when that word really, really became prevalent, or sorry, words, uh, and kind of knew that even though the movie meant something a little different to me in the sense that it was more about my own personal fears of, of not feeling masculine enough or not society's version of masculinity uh, or uh, not having this society's version of masculinity, uh, it, I knew that it was going to start pivoting towards that and so we talk about it in the, the sense that it's all about toxic masculinity but really it was a very personal place of just like do i feel like a man enough uh which is which is funny that it it changed in in that way but i think it was also something that was bound to happen anyway i think that people take ownership and when you watch something you relate to it and you find things that that about it that, that relate to your life and, and so that was inevitable well, is it something that, you know, since you mentioned earlier, you know, it wasn't karate for you, but it's jujitsu. Is that something that was bred specifically out of what you were either witnessing there or just, it just became the, the, the genesis of it all because it was an easy thing to kind of translate to this world? It was an interesting translation. I, I feel like the traditional sports narrative really lent itself to subverting the expectations of where that story would go. So like up to the halfway point, it kind of follows every movie from the 80s that is like a, uh, or, or 90s, like a, a Rudy or a Karate Kid or something yeah. where you know where it's going and you know that there's going to be these trials and tribulations and, and successes along the way and maybe a failure at the end, but you learn something. And halfway through the movie, when that arm breaks, you you know that it's not that movie anymore. And, and so uh, karate ended up being, or sorry, martial arts in general was where I wanted to be because at that point I'd been training at least a couple of years. I was a blue belt uh, and I wanted to do something in that world, but I also knew that nobody knew what jujitsu was and I didn't want to have to constantly explain or, or have to answer what that is. Whereas karate, you can, you can be from anywhere in the world and you know the word karate. So that became just an easier thing to, to have in the movie and then you don't have to have ex exposition. Uh, and then you also don't have it being people rolling around on the ground. It ends up being like kicking and punching, which is a little bit more visually appealing. I argue the other way around. I love watching jujitsu, but I don't think I'm most people. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's just always one of those weird little things that gets factored into this wonderful world of movie making. What one person 
whereas one person will want to pitch toxic masculinity right in the meeting, another person like yourself is not going to do that. And that's going to lead to two wildly different sort of things. And to be honest, I really do. I, I think I prefer it this way because you address the matter, but it's not something that's so blatantly hit over the head. As you yeah. said, you know, it's not taking your hand and saying, no, this is bad. It's ultimately yeah. leading you down this path and you're supposed to decide, okay, how far would I go if I was it, in Casey's shoes? It's showing, but it's not telling. So it's like, or showing, but not teaching maybe is better. Um, Cause it's very on the nose by design. It's like, it's a comedy about this. It's, it's, it's overt. Uh, I, I used to say it kind of hits people over the head, but with its, with its overtness, but not with its message. I don't think that it's a message film. I think that people are able to form their own opinions and you show them somebody saying all these really horrible things, but you don't say it's bad. People know it's bad. It's fine. You don't have to say it's bad. So I, I never looked at it as a teaching sort of thing. Um, and the people who thought of it that way were the people who it was probably talking about too. The, the, the people who embrace that sort of side of things and, and side of masculinity. I, I, going back to like the movie and talking about it and pitching and everything, like it's a script that literally no one wanted to make because I think on the surface, everyone just saw it as a weird karate movie. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't in, until NQ signed on, uh, they were the only ones who were like, we get what you're saying here. And we think that there's, there's value there. And it's not just this like surface level thing. There's more going on underneath it all. I mean, I had a producer literally say, and I think she makes great stuff and just happened to not get this. And that's fine. She said, I just have a hard time imagining you making karate seem cool. And that was the, I think, vibe that most people had, even though they never said it like she did. I think that in their head, they're like, I'm not going to make a karate movie. I'm trying to get like in, in with A24. They're not going to show that and stuff like I don't think that people really, really understood it until they saw it. And even then, until people talked about it afterwards, because the trailer came out and I think a lot of people still were like, oh, here's this twee Jesse Eisenberg karate comedy, like slapstick stuff. There's this like shitty music in the trailer. Uh, I, I think that it really sold the movie in a, the wrong way. But over the years, people have been able to find it via word of mouth and say like anytime a review pops up for it uh, on Letterboxd or something, it's, it's inevitably going to say something along the lines of, um, I thought this was going to be really stupid, but it actually yeah. turned out to be cool. And that's what we've been fighting, I think, for the past several years with the movie is that on the surface, it could be really stupid, but hopefully the people watch it know that there's more going on behind the scenes. I also imagine it's probably tough, especially in, in the case of self-defense where even if you can describe something on a page so well that there are certain things until you actually film it still don't make sense to people. Like for instance, for me is when they first do the whole, your kick feels like a punch thing, that makes perfect sense. But then when it comes back in and gets played later with the, uh, it was so weird, the doctor, you know, so weird. It was, somebody was kicking, it looked yeah. like a punch. That's so brilliant, but I don't think it translated oh. until you get it on film almost. I had, I had a, uh, my cinematographer was the first to admit that he was wrong. He, he goes, he read the script and he was like, I think I have two notes. And one of the notes was, I would lose the kick punch thing on the dog. I don't know that that's going to work. And even he knows my stuff so well. He's a close friend of mine. Once he saw it done, and it, how, especially like once you see the reaction that it gets in a theater, I mean, that's one of the biggest lines in the movie because you realize that, oh, this isn't bullshit. It's like in this world, that's truth. Like that's actually a thing. 
And then later on, we had very big discussions and I was on defense at times. And I'm so glad that I decided to stick with what we shot, but uh, we had a version where Jesse only karate chopped the window off of the, or the, uh, the mirror off of the car. Oh, all right. the truck, and then he walked out of frame and then you cut. Even though the tire kick, I'm so happy it's there. I was like, is this too much? Is this like gonna take people out of it? But I think it's one of those things where if you lean into it, it becomes the truth of the world. And you realize that maybe, I don't know, it just, it goes to build a world in which Jesse could have, uh, like Casey could feasibly kick a tire until it popped. So I don't know, we really like leaned in all that stuff. And uh, I really am happy with the level of, uh, of heightened uh, reality that, that exists in that world. Um, but yeah, the kick punch thing was one that I, I just, I'm, I'm so happy worked as well as I, I hoped it would. And also I'm sure uh, some audiences that didn't get it, what may have contributed to that is even though it was separated by a good chunk of years, I'm sure some people were going into this thinking, oh, it's another foot fist way. Yeah. Oh, we're just going to get more, you know, Danny McBride being a jackass, you know, lovable jackass, but a jackass. Yeah. And then yeah. you have this pitch black sensei that just morals do not apply because he has the superior might. And it's yeah. not just guy doesn't know better. It's he knows better and he knows, but he's still going to do what he wants because you can't stop him. Yeah. And we always, I mean, I, I had the initial conversation with Alessandro um, who plays sensei and, and said, I don't think he's actually that cool. I think that it, it's one of those cult-like things where in the, in the dojo, he has all these people who look up to him and respect him because of the belt. And in real life, he probably gets picked on still at the grocery store and he's probably not fighting back. It's, uh, he's, he's a sandals and flip-flops kind of guy. Like that's by design. We want him to not seem that cool, but show that in the context of a space where people listen to you and look up to you, that you get away with that power and you kind of push against it. You get more and more of it, or sorry, you embrace it. You get more and more of it. Um, and, and that like, it, it, it isn't in this world that he isn't necessarily cool. So I, I, all of that stuff was really fun and like really making sure that we leaned into these characters and, and who Anna was and what her backstory is and who Casey will be after the movie. I, I loved having those conversations with the cast. That also plays into that idea of, again, going back to talking about people who, you know, the people who felt differently are probably the ones it was, the movie was talking about, the people who go overboard, because somewhere that's where that whole, um, where he makes the actual belts kind of starts to play into things, because it's like, if I could show people, then maybe I won't have to go to this level they're trying to make me go to. And that's where it, it fits into that idea of, uh, maybe I'm not so cool, but if people can see this, then they'll just leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, I mean, We've all been there. We've all got things about us that we're like, whether it's people who have a car that they love and they feel like that car makes them a little cooler. And so they want to drive that car to certain things or, or their job. They have to always talk about their job because that's their status and they don't have anything else. And we all have those things that we want people to see and make us feel better about ourselves. Casey's just ends up being this very specific thing that that color around his waist makes him feel better. And he feels like a stronger person when he wears it. And I love yeah. that about him. Uh, and it's not too dissimilar from how you feel when you first get your blue belt in jujitsu. You kind of like, I remember tying it up and putting it around my waist and be like, oh, I can't wait to wear this class like next week. And, and it's silly, but you get a sense of like satisfaction. You get a sense of, uh, uh, you, you feel good about the fact that you attained that and so why not want to show it to people? I get that. Yeah. I get it. 
Oh yeah, I mean, it's like, it's that status symbol or even if it's, if you just take on a personal level, it's a sign of accomplishment. Like I okay. did that. And then of course it comes to, oh, but you got to go to the next belt now. Yeah. So then it becomes another cycle where it's like pushing levels. Yeah. No, but this, these are, again, these are all movies. It's not just, it's not just a singular thought because they're all movies that, yeah, a lot of it has been maybe, you know, talked about before, uh, dealt with before in, in books, in magazines, movies, music, whatever it is. But because we're getting that special delivery from where you're bringing it to us, it, it, it's a whole new level for people who maybe wanted to, should have seen something with the same message, but didn't because it was silly or it was too serious. So yeah. you're, you're finding a new way to bring things to people. Do you have a lot of people now coming to you with that, like, thank you for being able to do this in a different way for us? Um, that's a two-parter. So the first part is that I want to mention that, like, the thing that people reference for this movie all the time is something like Fight Club, which I really enjoyed. But I, when I wrote the script, I'd only watched Fight Club once, and it was when mm. I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't, like, map out Fight Club and say, like, okay, that's how I'm going to do this movie, which is, like, insinuated over and over again over the years, which is so weird to me. But what to, what you're saying, I, even though I think it's pretty easy for an intelligent person to watch Fight Club and see that's a it's it's against what it's showing. It's it's not for that that masculine sort of energy. It's not for com commercialization and all this. So many people leaned into it because they're like, oh yeah, Fight Club, like, whoa, cool. And I think it's very easy to see that how overt self-defense is. Uh, it, it's just like so big that you can't mistake it for another message, which is, it was something that was important to me. I didn't want it to feed into a culture that, that it actually is very much opposed yeah. to. Um, but then touching on like people coming to me specifically, there were people in the jujitsu community, uh, particularly women who are world champions or, or uh, like close to that status who would DM me and say, I saw the art of self-defense and it hit close to home because the, uh, the, the way in which the women at my gym are treated, even if it's not as overt as in the movie, there's always this sort of second class tier to, to the way our training is presented or the people we're paired up with or how literally how big our locker room is, that kind of stuff. So it was interesting to see that even though I was coming at it from the perspective of this is a man's perspective on what it means to be a man or not a man, that also even with that smaller character, again, going back to saying that, that Imogen maybe wasn't, uh, her character wasn't given enough, it kind of was always, it kind of had to be because that's what the movie is about. I'm not telling yeah. a woman's story because I'm, that perspective is not my perspective necessarily to tell, but uh, I am glad that at least it touches on it in a way that people felt seen uh, and that was important. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that also sort of avoids getting preachy with that sort of thing because yeah. it's very easy to get heavy handed and just maybe extend some of those scenes by five minutes and she tells more of a depressing story and just yeah. lays it on where, whereas between your content and then Imogen's performance, it's, it's right there. Well, and the way that the movie wraps up and the way that her character kind of takes power and, and in a way, like things are handed to her, literally handed to her, her belt is, and it's just the guy fixing her problem. I was always concerned about that uh, and, and I think rightly so, but when Imogen, like when I told her that, and I said that that's a concern that I have, how do you feel? She was like, that's the movie though. It's like, it's also a comment on that. Like why let's lean into that. That's not, yeah. a, it didn't affect her in that way. 
there were people who watched it and felt like, oh man, it's God giving the woman her her due and and uh, whatever, but like fixing her problems. But I think most people got that it is part of that world. And it was it, it's also in its own way a comment on on the way that that's presented in movies and in art and, and everything. It's such a strange feeling to have too, because we're we're so in you know buried under all of these you know awful things that have you know perpetuated through the years. But in the same breath, it, it makes it available for when somebody wants to do something special to subvert expectations by using that as a tool. So kind of going back to Duel, for instance, when she has to extend uh, her training period and you think it's going to go one way, but of course it goes in a completely different direction, you get to use that for a, a better purpose. Exactly. Yeah. And that one, that one's a fun one. That, that reveal, I mean, it may not catch everyone off guard, but I think it's, it's doing just enough to... So again, subvert those expectations. I love that the, the previous films, it, it tended to be uh, subverting expectations, starting with something that seems more positive and it actually ends up being more nefarious. And I like that Duel has a couple of moments where you think it's gonna be darker and it actually ends up being a lighter sort of thing. It, the movie for as dark as it is, has a bunch of optimism and humor in it, uh, which, which counters, I think, the expectations. Yeah. And now there's just an expectation of you making a hip hop dance musical with Aaron Paul and Karen Gillan. It's already in the can. I already got it. <laughs> he pulled an X on us. He pulled a tie. <laughs> I West pulled an X. I, a tie West, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our new. We are no longer overdue rentals. We're now tie West, yeah. <laughs> we have Riley come on every week and tie West someone just for fun. <laughs> oh man, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, uh, Matthew, I don't know if you have anything else or if we should just ask the, I don't know if we should really just dig in right now and ask Riley about Marvel movies being cinema or what movies you'd want to direct in that canon. But I think we've, I think we have done a lovely job here. Yeah, no, that's, I'll, I'll answer that really quick. So like the, uh, IndieWire asked me yesterday, two days ago, uh, about that. and, but in a, like in an intelligent way where I was like, I don't think Marvel wants me to do anything. Like, I don't think people who like Marvel movies would want somebody like me who did not grow up with comic books and doesn't have an attachment or affinity for characters uh, in that world. Why would I direct that movie? Like, you want me to stay away from that shit. Like, if I direct it, I'm going to do a bad job. So yeah, like, that's my answer. It's not that it's not art and it's not that it's not entertainment. I'd just be bad at making that art and entertainment. So that's my answer. But if Marvel ever adapts Dead Ringers, then yeah, well they've totally got the rights to that, right? Oh, oh yeah, through through some weird, uh, you know, uh, this person bought this person bought this person bought this company. Yeah, probably. But that I think that might have been a Fox movie. So unless there's some sort of special structured deal, in, I bet Cronenberg has tight lips and grasp on that uh, on that oh, uh, movie. Oh, so, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. yeah, in fact, I'm sure whatever uh, the, the TV reboot that they're doing, I believe it's with Rachel Weiss right now. It's I'm sure still that probably under his, yeah, banner, his production company. I think yeah. he's, he's kept a, a, a vice grip on that. Oh, so that was a Morgan Creek movie. So if it was like any of the they're rest- They're still involved. Of, they were still yeah, involved. So if it was at least when I met, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so if it was anything that looked like the rest of their catalog, they got the rights. Because I know at one point they had like, a slew of movies come back to them and they're like, yeah, we're going to do an Exorcist sequel. We're going to do East yeah. 3. We're going to do this and this. Yeah. So yeah, they escaped, they, they escaped by that much. Yeah. They're, 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 they've got enough stuff in their back catalog that that, that all is going to be self-perpetuating, I think. 
Well, Riley, thank you so much for joining us to talk about both these films and can't wait for the next one. Thank you guys. Uh, thank yeah. you for Duel. Oh man, did I dig this. Glad you guys liked it. Uh, oh yeah. Hopefully, go see it April 15th, everybody. Yes, <laughs> in a theater near you with your yeah. closest personal friends who happen to look just like you. <laughs> Take it easy. Bye guys, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Riley. Thank you so much for your time. What a that, nice young man. That man is just a good hang, to yeah, be honest. Like, we've, we've, never really, we've never had a bad guest on this show. And even if we ever did have a bad guest, I would never say that because it would probably, it would probably even just be like a set of circumstances unless someone was like a real jerk. Yeah, so we just that, had a bad day. Yeah. yeah, and that's understandable. But that being said, Riley is just... It's just some people, I, I think we mentioned it in a previous episode, some people just vibe better with our concept and our style than others. Yeah, and it, yeah. Again, it's no one's fault. It's not a bad thing. It's just, that's how it goes. But Riley is definitely someone that's that's on the sort of overdue rentals sort of wavelength. And I think it's probably because he's he's around our, our age group. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so probably he's younger, probably, probably younger than one this. of those kids that, you know, grew up wandering through the video store and taping things off of HBO. Well, you know, what I like most about all this, besides just talking about the films and talking with him, I like, he's one of the few people that, and I talk about this a lot with music, um, because I think so many people think that any art form has to come from your own past. And I like how he talks about the idea that like, you know, this, these are not my feelings or I, this is not kind of who I am. I'm just making a story. And I like I like people who who are all about that. It's just like just because there's a subject matter going on doesn't mean that it's actually part of me. It's just something I'm exploring, and that's okay. Yeah. You don't have to think that it's part of my life. Yeah, like it's not like it doesn't all have to be subtext based on oh, you know, one day I I met this jerk at a strip mall uh, dojo, and then I wrote the art of self defense. It's yeah. like no, I just kind of reflected on, it. and then even just the the Fight Club comparisons, which. The more that you just read the synopsis of that movie, the more it comes up. Yeah. It's like, even with that, it's like, no, he, he didn't mean to do that. It's just, it happened, yeah, but it's, it's not exactly what he was aiming for. It's not like he's like, I'm going to write the next Fight Club. It's like, no, I want to write an indie where Jesse Eisenberg uh, learns to man up against Alessandro Nivola. Well, you know, it's funny too, though, because he did mention about how, you know, when he's not talking to people like us, you know, his cadence of speaking is kind of like his character's cadence of speaking. And you know, he's obviously aware of it and it's come, become something where he uses it toward making that dark humor that, that, that lives in his films. Oh, but yeah. it's, it's like only him and, and, and uh, I think we've mentioned before, maybe, you know, Yorgos Lathamos are the only people who are really doing that kind of thing. And they both have their own special stranglehold on it. Oh yeah, especially in Duel, because I just, the more that I noticed Karen Gillan using like the very sort of, okay, this is the tone that I'm using here. Yeah. And, oh, that's very interesting. Should I say Matthew or Matthew? <laughs> I could do that either way. Like it's, and then plus having her do the American accent helps it because it's just so, it's still kind of a, a little weird. Like hearing her do that after like being introduced to her as Amy Pond on Doctor Who and she's using like her natural Scottish accent, but then, or, or like something closer to it. But then she does the American accent and it's sort of clipped. And like, even in Guardians of the Galaxy, like when she's Nebula, it's kind of very much like this. Yeah, she's like, yeah. Then, yeah, but good, she- Good one. 
a friend of mine actually my my radio friend i i recorded um as, as we're recording this it's the day that i recorded my radio uh spot that I, well yes with adam yeah. uh our our previous guest who talked about the show with me again today because he he has another film in mind for when he comes back okay he wants to do hot to trot see i actually i i'm all up for hot to trot i was trying to get but the thing about bobcat is there's a lot of different things i want to talk about the bobcat with and i don't know where oh, we yeah. are with uh but we'll come back to that less less important go ahead yeah. what you were saying though but anyway uh oh crap i forgot what i was saying oh yeah but he was asking me at one point it's like we were both just remarking on karen gillen's performances and things he's like or do you think she's someone that's going to win an Oscar one day? Mm. And I told him, like, I don't think it's a matter of when, it's a matter of how. Because mm. she's definitely talented enough and she's also a, a director, which I would love, I mean, I, I would love to have her on for, I believe yeah. it's called The Party's Just Beginning, her directorial debut and I think solo directorial project so far. But then again, when you're busy being cast in Judd Apatow's new movie and then Riley Stern's new movie, it's it's kind of hard to complain that you can't get around to directing. Well, they also, and they also, what? I mean, they also recently finished uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 as well, right? I mean. I think they're still filming that, but she oh. also, she's also in Thor Love and Thunder for a little bit. Like, okay. it's, it's kind of hard to complain in that sort of thing. I mean, you still could, but it's probably very specific. But anyway. I totally agreed with it because I think she's a fantastic performer. Yeah. And just, it's, it, it's not even like the doctor. I'm not, not the doctor who goggles on. Like I loved her on that show, but I've still been able to follow her through all these other things. Like, yeah, I think the first time I saw her outside of that was the big short. And she plays like that very small part of like the vapid young woman. Who's like, I'm going to go talk to those tech bros over there. And it's like, again, the, the first time the American, Karen Gillan's American accent pops up and it's like, you know, even with her being in like a big block, even with her being part of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that other stuff, she's still riding that line between where there's that section of the world that only knows, you know, like a certain level of stardom. And if you're not in there, they may have seen you before, but they don't know your name kind of thing. She's still riding that line before I think she makes it to that higher level for those people. Not, not that it has, and not that I think that high calling it a high level means like it's like a better acting because I, I I disagree. I think this is this is the best kind of stuff you're gonna get um, right now. Um, not that's this all sounded wrong, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> well, yeah, what you're saying is like dual is like it's not a blockbuster project where like everyone's fighting their agents for it, well, but no, it's a really good movie that just the movie has the goods and to land something like this is is always pay dirt and especially with Aaron Paul like yeah he's not in it for that long but he just maximizes what he does in here and again that's another performer where it's like I love his work I really like him uh sorry to hear he couldn't make the Weird Al movie though oh I didn't even know he's he supposed to be doing any of that I didn't know it's news to me yeah, well, uh, I, I forget where I, I saw this. I think it might have been in our newsroom because we had someone talk to Aaron Paul for the movie. But what happened was he did the funnier die, like Weird Al biopic short that they did years ago. Okay. And that's what's the basis for the new Roku streaming movie that they're oh. doing with Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al Yankovic. I did not know that. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, just as he was about to go film a small part for it, he turns out he had covid probably probably from after making duel <laughs> maybe you never know riley stearns just handed it out to everybody thanks for being part of the movie thank you here's your partying gift have fun in quarantine 
Yeah, no, but I think, I mean, again, uh, Art of Self-Defense is on Hulu for people who haven't seen it yet. Make sure you go and watch it and cross it off your overdue rentals list. Uh, Duel is out April 15th. Make sure you go and see that as well, of course. Because, again, I think they're both great movies. But I do think, I think, like you said, I think Riley's kind of more and more kind of fitting even more into his own niche. And I think Duel's is probably the best out of all of them so far. Oh, yeah. I. It's just, it's... It's sort of rare where you get to tra- you get to chart the trajectory of someone's voice growing stronger, mm. especially when he's jumping. He's technically jumping into uh, genre territory here, even yeah. though it is not. It's not one of those far flung genre movies. It's still very much dealing with those ideas. Absolutely. So yes, everybody, go cross all those off your overdue rentals list, and, and don't like, forget to do your taxes too. Depending yeah, on time actually, you're watching this. Funny enough, I actually forgotten i did him this morning everybody if everybody needs to find us though mike where can people find us oh that's a good idea well when we're not consulting our accountants or training <laughs> to fight ourselves in mortal combat you can find us on tiktok and instagram at overdue rental show at on twitter at rentals overdue on facebook at overdue rentals and you can send us love letters suggestions or file your claim under amendment 28 uh to our email address at overdurentals at gmail.com. But since you're on the internet, you're doing other things, you're obviously looking for more overdue rentals content. And unless you're listening to this in the in the future, where we have plenty of episodes after this, yes. uh, you can go back and find even more episodes wherever you ethically source your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, any of those places. But also don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because we want to know what we can do to make your experience at the Overdue Rentals rental counter that much better. We want to stay open, especially because as of today, this is the, as of this recording, this is the first day that Matthew announced our show on Facebook. What? Yeah. Two scrappy kids had an episode with Ben Wheatley about a film called In the Earth Mm, and and another film called Kill List. Oh yes. Kill List. Oh boy. Oh man. Oh, I loved, I love that I got to watch Kill List because of that, that again, one of the best parts about Overdue Rentals is you're either revisiting a favorite or you're discovering something new and discovering Kill List was a treat. It's been a wonderful year, Mike, and two, another year. Here we go. After ah, so many years. Join us one in one final anniversary. Bye bye. Bye There'll be more though. I don't. That's the anniversary. Bye bye. That was sounded no, weird. Yes. No, that that was. I think that was pretty specific. Specific. It's okay. Like good. Good. Anniversary. Right. Bye bye. And then we get you know plenty more after that. Bye bye. Bye bye.